The people of Israel and the land are inseparable. And if the Lord would not send Elijah the prophet, if he did not turn the hearts of the Jewish people to faith in Jesus, then he would have one choice but to strike the land with a curse instead of blessing it. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've reached the end of our study of the prophet Elijah. Although we had seen Elijah taken up to heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2, this week we moved into Malachi chapter 4, which prophesies of a time Elijah will return. As we move over to the New Testament today, we find in Revelation 11 the prophecy of two witnesses who will come to earth during the tribulation. One of these two men will likely be Enoch, but as we rejoin Pastor Brogy, who begins reading from Revelation 11:6, we'll see whether the second man will be Elijah. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Not only do they have power over individuals, they have power over nations. They control the rain on the earth, the text says. They have power to shut up the sky during the days of their prophesying. So the nations of the world will fear them. They will hate them. And if you want to have clean drinking water that is not turned into blood, and if you don't want fire breathed on you, you better listen to them because they have power from God. Now, as you probably know, there's a lot of speculation as to the identity of these two people. Now, it's almost unanimous among theologians and Bible students that Elijah must be at least one of these two men. Why? Because he's going to come back. Jesus said it. Malachi said it. He's going to come in the first half of the tribulation period, the same time these two witnesses minister. But the question doesn't usually debate over Enoch. It's who's the second fellow. Now, some would say that this is Enoch and Elijah, because if you remember, Enoch, like Elijah, was physically taken off the earth without seeing death in the traditional way. In Genesis 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Why? For God took him. And then in Hebrews 11, when it comments on this event, the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11:5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up. And if you were here last week, we studied first, uh, 2 Kings 2.11, and they, meaning Elijah and Elisha, and they were going along and talking. Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And nothing more is said about the destination to which they're taken. The writer says that Elijah was taken to heaven, and the Hebrew word is shameam. Same word in the beginning, God created the shameam, the heavens and the earth. It can refer to one of three things. It can refer just to the sky, it can refer to outer space, or it can refer to the very throne room of God. Now, I can tell you with absolute authority that neither of these two men went into the throne room of God. And some people, that's what they think because they're not thinking carefully and soundly. So they think, oh, this would be a good pick because these guys never saw death. Now, stay with me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23 that the very first person ever to rise from the dead to receive a glorified body 
was the Lord Jesus. In addition, we know from that same chapter, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Then he'll say, for this perishable is put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Understand, Enoch and Elijah would need glorified bodies to walk in the throne room of God, and the first one ever to receive such a body is the Lord Jesus. Therefore, in both cases, we cannot say from these passages that these men entered into the presence of God in bodily form because God had not yet pulled that off and he would not pull it off until Jesus died on the cross and as the first fruits was raised from the dead. Not to mention Jesus plainly said in John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. At this point in human history, no one had ascended into heaven. And so it's theologically possible for a human to precede Christ into heaven. Not to mention, had it been possible for the Father to have permitted fallen men like Enoch and Elijah to enter into heaven in bodily form before Jesus' death and resurrection, then in a technical sense, Jesus would not have had to have died. I mean, if the Father possessed another way, and which to take someone into heaven before Jesus died, then he could have found another way of salvation, but he did not. Now, these men are what we call a type. A type is tupos in the New Testament, Greek. It's a, it's a print. It's an illustration. It's a picture of an Old Testament reality that's fulfilled in the New Testament. So, for instance, Isaac in Hebrews 11 is called a type of Christ, up there on top of Mount Moriah. He is the monogene, the uniquely begotten, not like Jesus, but he is a miracle baby in that when Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90, they have a baby. Jesus is a monogene. Only of two people is that said of the only begotten in all of Scripture, Jesus and Isaac. But Jesus, of course, his birth was unique in that he was born supernaturally, took on our human humanity. Divinity was brought together inseparably with perfect, sinless humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit without a human father. But understand, a type is not the same as the reality. And so these two men, in one sense, were a type of rapture, and that God permitted these men, without seeing physical death, to enter into heaven. And so Paul speaks in this great resurrection chapter, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, we're not all die. We will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. But understand, a type is not the same as the reality. Isaac was not the same as the Lord Jesus who actually died and was indeed the eternal God in humanity. So these men did not see death, but neither were they brought into bodily form into heaven. But I think we could safely assume, based on Luke chapter 16, that their souls were brought into what the Bible calls Abraham's bosom or Old Testament paradise, different from New Testament paradise. And they shed their bodies, so to speak, at that point, just like Samuel was appeared before Saul, and he's given some kind of a spirit body, and Moses and Elijah, who, by the way, are recognizable humans, as you will be recognizable in your resurrection body. 
But it appears their soul, no doubt, based on Luke 16, went to Abraham's bosom. But in either case, God granted both of these men remarkable departures from the earth. But what I'm trying to say is to try to dogmatically say, well, it's got to be Moses and Elijah because they didn't see death, and they're in resurrection bodies, is to miss the whole tenor of Scripture. So it seems almost certain that one of the two is Enoch. But let's go back to Malachi 4. Behold, I am coming to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, it's interesting to note that the time in human history that he's describing is the tribulation period. And it's interesting to note, too, that Moses is mentioned in verse 4, like Elijah is mentioned in verse 5. And these two witnesses have ministries that mimic the ministries of Moses and Elijah. On three occasions, Elijah brought fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel. And then with those two companies of 50 men, so 102 men with their captains died that day. In addition, Moses is the one who turned the waters into blood. And I find it interesting that when Christ is speaking about the coming kingdom that is preceded with the time of the great and horrible day of the Lord, that he has Moses and Elijah on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. But hear me. While Christians might debate who these witnesses are, absolutely no one debates what they are going to do and what God will pull off through them. And I think sometimes it is good that God withholds information from us. Why? Because you have to search the Scriptures. Some of us would not be searching the Scriptures this morning about the resurrection and the order of how it unfolds were it not for the fact that God left some things untold to us. And God wants us to mind the truths of Scriptures, Proverbs will repeatedly say. We're talking about important things. People talk about the ball game and their favorite pop star. Those are meaningless things. We're talking about eternal things, things that really matter in life. And two men are coming, two witnesses, who just happen to have the same kind of ministries that Moses and Elijah have. And so God tells them in Malachi to remember Moses, and then he brings up Elijah, and understand, at this point in the nation of Israel, for the most part, their minds are blinded. Why are their minds blinded? Not all of them. There's a couple hundred thousand Jews for Jesus in the United States, but most Jews are in unbelief. Why? Because of their hardness of heart. And so God is saying, remember, respond. And thank God it's going to happen. And it's going to happen during this seven-year period when Elijah comes to preach. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. And since there's one author from Genesis to Revelation who perfectly brings together both Testaments, by the Spirit of God, there's one consistent thread through it. And so numerous prophets, whether it's Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Zechariah, point to this coming great and terrible day of the Lord when Israel will be converted. So here in verse 6, God reveals when Elijah comes and what it is that he's going to do. Look at Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6. We get the end game. I'm almost done. Stay with me. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, there's all kinds of crazy interpretations about this verse. 
Certainly, it has absolutely nothing to do with uh, what the Mormon church teaches. Joseph Smith says, quoting Malachi verse 6 of chapter 4, that this is in reference to Nephite, the prophet, uh, the Nephite prophet Moroni, who appeared to Joseph Smith and said that he was given Elijah's priesthood on September the 21st, 1823. It has nothing to do with this. And that's why they have the family values that they have today. That's what he said, and that's what he taught. That's what Mormons teach. Of course, Joseph Smith, I hope you know, had 40 wives. And in 2014, the Mormon church had to admit it because it was documented in writing all over the internet. So they concur and admit, yes, he had 40 wives. And his youngest wife was 14 years old. I want to tell you, he was a pervert. And he habitually took scripture out of context to make it mean whatever he wanted it to mean. Now, some real Christian people, because they believe there's no future for the Jewish people, and they think the church is the new Israel, you will hear them preach this passage and say, well, this is a prophecy of God, you know, bringing together the generation gap between fathers and sons and daughters, and, and that dads will take the spiritual leadership that they would t- should take, and that the children and the dads will come together. Now, while it's admirable for a father to take spiritual leadership in his home and to nurture the hearts of his children, this text has nothing to do with the reconciliation of families. Look at it again. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, please note he's not talking about a father, but fathers. And Malachi is speaking of the fathers of Israel. And in every Jew reading this, even to this day, they think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, because God repeatedly refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Put out in the margin, Exodus 3 in verse 15. Let me read it to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to all the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Likewise, when Stephen is preaching to a Jewish audience who want to stone him to death, who do stone him to death, in Acts 7 and verse 32, he reminds them, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so Malachi 4 and verse 6 needs to be interpreted in the context of the whole of Scripture. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The words, their children, is not a reference to your children or my physical descendants, but rather to the children of Israel. And this is the way, by the way, that Luke in the New Testament, when he relates this prophecy, understood it. Again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So put out in the margin, Luke 1, 15 through 17. The angel Gabriel appeared to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, in speaking of this baby that it was going to be conceived in Elizabeth's womb with this old couple, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
here it is, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That's Malachi 4, 6. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Before John the Baptist was born, God's angel Gabriel predicted that this man, John, would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And while John freely admitted that he came to prepare the way of the Lord, he equally said, I'm not Elijah. Remember that encounter? Let me read it to you from John 1. Put out in the margin, John 1, 21 to 23. They said to him, to John, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Meaning, are you the Messiah? Deuteronomy 18, he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And so as we studied this morning, when Jesus called John the Baptist, Elijah who was to come, he conditioned that designation, that title, if you are willing to accept it, but they were not willing to accept it. And that's why Malachi 4 is not completely fulfilled, but will be fulfilled when Elijah actually literally comes. Please don't miss the whole point here in Malachi. He, Elijah, to come will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so I will not come and smite the land with a curse. He is saying there is coming a time when the hearts of the people of Israel will be restored to the faith of the fathers. Read the prophet Zechariah. He's a contemporary of the prophet Malachi. And he speaks of the conversion of the Jewish people during this same time frame, during the great tribulation. And so when Elijah the prophet comes, he will turn the children of Israel and they will look back with fondness on the faith of their fathers. Men like Abraham, remember what Jesus said of Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And like Abraham who saw Jesus' day and believed, so the Jewish people will believe. And the fathers in turn will be delighted with what the children of Israel are doing as they look with favor upon their spiritual offspring. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so through these 10 messages on the prophet Elijah, we've seen he's a very significant person in Israel's history because one, when he was here, he turned a remnant of Israelis from worshiping Baal back to worshiping the one true God, Hashem. Now, why will Elijah seek to restore the people to faith? He gives us the reason. So that, you might want to circle those two words, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, please note, he does not speak of the earth. One translation only does that. It has nothing to do with manuscripts. Haaretz. He's talking about the land, and in every situation, the land here is the land of Israel. That's precisely what the Hebrew text says. Unless I send the prophet Elijah to preach the gospel before the Messiah comes back, I will have no choice but to curse the land. See, the people of Israel and the land are inseparable. 
And if the Lord would not send Elijah the prophet, if he did not turn the hearts of the Jewish people to faith in Jesus, then he would have one choice but to strike the land with a curse instead of blessing it. But because the Jews will turn to faith in Christ, blessing will come. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in the wings. And God will not curse the land but bless the land. Now what's true of a Jew is true of a Gentile. In John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides in him. Jew or Gentile alike, the one whose heart is not turned to Jesus, the Messiah, is under curse. And you can try to escape that truth, but it is inescapable. Now, let me close with three brief applications. What can we learn from our passage of Scripture? Number one, the Jewish nation is God's chosen nation. Remember how this prophet opened? He opens and closes the same way. In Malachi 1 and verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? There's no more pathetic words in the entire Bible. God says, I love you, and the Jewish people say, how have you loved us? And so Malachi writes this book during a very difficult time in Israel's history where the people were doubting the love of God. And so they sarcastically ask in the opening verses, how have you loved us? To which God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I love Jacob. Most of you know this verse from his quotation in Romans 9 and verse 13 where Paul quotes it from the Septuagint, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This verse has nothing to do that God chose one boy to go to heaven and the other to go to hell. My Reformed friends teach that because they don't think there's any future for Israel, and they think they're the new Israel. It's a distorted and a a profound, uh, out-of-context use of the prophet Malachi. You read Romans 9 through 11, and you discover that the descendants of Jacob, who is given a new name, Israel, becomes God's chosen people from which the Christ will come. God had a plan for Jacob just as he had a plan for Esau. God had a plan for Isaac just as he had a plan for Ishmael. And God had a plan for the descendants of Jacob, the people of Israel, just as he had a plan for the descendants of Esau called the Edomites. And so the book opens in the same way it closes. God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to be the people from whom he would bless the nations because our Messiah is from that people. Our Messiah is a Jew. And so in Malachi 3, the prophet spells out the horrible time of judgment that will come on the Jewish people who do not believe. It's kind of like a man on an airplane from Atlanta to Tel Aviv. The airplane, everyone in it, is headed to one destination. Let that airplane represent the nation. God has a destination and a plan for the people of Israel. But the people on the airplane have individual choices. You can choose this meal over this meal, this drink over that drink, this movie over another. Even so, the descendants of the nation are set apart as a people because God brought Messiah the first time through Israel and he's going to bring Messiah back a second time through Israel. But that doesn't automatically mean that every Jew goes to heaven any more than it means every Gentile goes to heaven. Unless you come and call upon Yeshua in faith, 
you will regret it for all of eternity. Secondly, I not only am reminded that the Jewish people are God's chosen people, and by the way, when you meet these Christians who call themselves Christians and they're anti-Semites, <laughs> they are grossly ignorant and they're not true Christians. Number two, God always keeps his promises. You know, God made some promises to the nation concerning a land, a seed, and a blessing. And although Israel is largely unbelief, God's going to keep his promises. Romans 8 ends, can anything separate us from the love of God? And Paul goes through every conceivable category. And so the logical question that would come up is, well, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, what about Israel? You said that you love them with an everlasting love. You promised them peace in their land. What's happened? And so Paul reminds us in Romans 9 and verse 6 that the word of God has not failed. God will keep his promises to Israel. And that's how 9, 10, and 11 unfold. Calvin, God bless him, you'll see him in heaven. But he had a warped perspective of the Jewish people and it affected every commentary he wrote. And so he came to 9, 10, and 11 and he missed the whole point of it. Jacob, I love. Esau, I hate it. He is going back to Genesis 25. Two nations are in your womb. It's God choosing one nation out of all the nations of the world. And so Romans 9 deals with that, how God elected the Jewish people in the past. In chapter 10, he deals with their rejection in the present. But in chapter 11, he deals with their restoration in the future. And Paul tells us that there's coming a time, just like Malachi says, when their hearts will be restored and they'll believe in Jesus because God will keep every promise and God cannot lie. Third and finally, God has only one way of salvation. God has always had only one way of salvation. Now, I think it's significant that the Old Testament ends with a curse. Why do you think that happens? Because you see the law of Moses and good works and good deeds never bring salvation. The prophecy of Malachi, the last prophet writing the last book of the Old Testament, concludes with a curse. Just like Paul recorded in Galatians 3, quoting Deuteronomy 27, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. You cannot keep the law of God and be saved unless you keep it perfectly. And if you're trying to get into heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments or following the golden rule or getting baptized or confirmed or joining some church, you'll spend an eternity without God. But I thank God for Galatians 3 and verse 1. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, for my sin. He was our substitute, taking our place, bearing God's wrath that if you will call upon him, he will instantly save you. He'll place the Spirit of God in you so that God will become real to you in a way that you never imagined. And when you die or when Jesus comes, he'll take you straight up into heaven. To listen again to today's final message from our series in the life and times of Elijah the prophet, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV10. 
You only have about another month or so to sign up for the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel, slated for September and October of this year. The Israeli government has opened up the country again to tourism, and Dr. Rogi will be hosting two separate trips. If you have never been to the Holy Land, you owe it to yourself to go and see the places you have only read about as they come alive through Dr. Brogi's leading. Details are online at stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow we begin a study in the book of 1 Timothy. Join us then as we search the scriptures.